The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, we are continuing our study on gender and sexual identity, and uh, I never quite finish, you know, the handouts, so I always take the last 20, 30% of last week's handout and tack it into the beginning, and on we go. Uh, but I also want to do a little bit of review as we uh, just continue to, uh, you know, learn the lessons uh, that the Word of God would have on this topic. Uh, I think the, the purpose of this BFL is to be mindful and to respond biblically to be mindful of a, of a very powerful, consistent attack in our culture on the concept of gender. We can see it around us all the time. Christians have had a hard time knowing how to respond to it, and uh, that's understandable. Um, but the Word of God is sufficient. Isn't it amazing? The 66 books of the Bible are sufficient for any and every situation that we will ever face. Uh, that We don't need... Uh, or wish that, that another couple of books had been written, you know, 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 1,000. This is complete and marvelous, and everything we need is here. And so the purpose of this class uh, is to understand and to celebrate the idea of gender, uh, that God created human beings in His image, male and female. And though we can't fully understand differences and all that, one thing I'm, I'm finding, and I, I shared... Uh, this I shared over the last few weeks, and I'm going to keep saying it. The beauty of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and trying to understand those, like within the context of marriage, uh, by far the, the most significant thing you can say about uh, the husband and the wife is that they're human, created in the image of God, both of them equally in the image of God, male and female. And so just the foundation of good treatment in a, in a marriage is for each spouse to recognize the humanity of the other person. Like James says, with the same mouth we praise our God and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. This should not be. So the idea is we should treat the other person like a human being created in the image of God. And I think we can extend that to what's common as well in Christ. That both of them, if they are Christians, both of them are not only created in the image of God, but now redeemed in the image of the Creator, redeemed by the blood of Christ from sin, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we share together a Savior. We share together an indwelling Spirit. We share together a destiny that I've had the joy of preaching about over the last number of weeks. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. We're going to the same place. We're heirs together of the same gift of life by grace. So many things we share. And so what we share together is far more significant, actually, than what's different between us. But that doesn't mean that what's different between us is not important. That's not true. Uh, we can do both and, not either or. But I just want to say, I don't want to put a percentage to it. I'm just so mathematical all the time. But like 85, 90% of the reality is in those things you share. And the differences are going to be important, but they're not going to dominate the relationship. I think when you get a, a tyrannical misuse of authority, that's where the person has taken something that is true, that authority comes from God, and expanded it to dominate that relationship. That's, that's wrong husband-wife, it's wrong parent-to-child, master-slave, or employer-employee, government to the, the subjects, citizens. That's a problem. 
And that's something we, we have to instead look at Jesus and what did he do with authority? He was a servant king. And so we see all that. None of this is on the handout, it's just on my heart. <laughs> all right, but the idea is that we are to celebrate each other's humanity and celebrate each other's new humanity in Christ before we even talk about these things. But again, it's a both and, not either or. We're also going to look in Genesis 2 at gender-based roles that are important. And so there was a time that Adam was alone. There was a time that, 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 that there was no woman. Clearly God was going to make a woman because there's no way that he could be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it alone. Not possible. And so uh, he was alone in naming the animals. He was alone for a, a, a very you know, brief moment, really in redemptive history, this moment. But God said it's not good for the man to continue alone. We should hear, even though the word of God says be alone, it was good for him to be alone for a while because God did it that way. To establish male headship, to establish Adam's headship over the entire human race, a unique headship. Adam had a unique role that I don't have as head of the human race. Uh, And then Jesus, the second Adam. But uh, you see what I'm saying? That unique role was established, according to 1 Timothy 2, by him being created first, then the woman. And so therefore, that that male leadership role is established. So this whole class is coming about because there is confusion about all these things. Deep gender confusion. And our society, and sadly, increasingly, our churches and Christian parents and others just seem to be unable to answer the question, uh, uh, um, a young man's question, Dad, what does it mean for me to be a man and not a woman? I, I just, it's so clear to me that our society does not have an answer to that question. Or the, the young, young girl saying to her mom, Mom, what does it mean for me to be a woman and not a man? They just have no idea. And this has been more underscored than ever before. This week I listened to Albert Moeller's briefing on Friday, and he was talking about extremely liberal women's colleges of which my sisters went to one, Wellesley College, right near MIT. And Wellesley is a bastion of of feminism, academic feminism, militant feminism. That was what was there. If you went as like an MIT student to a social event there, you were going to get talked to, all right, about feministic themes and all that. That's that's what Wellesley was all about. And there are others like Mount Holyoke, Simmons, a lot of colleges up there. They're very liberal in in their views and their women's colleges. They have a problem because they're dealing with the transgender issue, and what do you think the problem is for them as women's colleges? They have no definition of what it means to be a woman. Specifically, who will they admit to the college? They actually, one of these liberal arts colleges had a matrix of eight possibilities on this. Eight. I'm thinking there's two, just a thought, but there's eight. And the only one of the eight they will not admit is someone born biologically male who identifies as a male. They won't admit that. Any of the other seven are in. You're like, well, what are the others? I don't know them all. I can guess a few of them, all right? Like you could say, you could say for example, born a woman identifying as a man. That would be a transgender, I guess, man. I, I don't know which you, where you start, where you end, but at any rate. Um, born, I was clearly born a woman identifying as a woman, that's standard, <laughs> that, that, that was, that's a woman for me, that's a woman, all right, but then born a man identifying as a woman, you can, you're in, and again, it's not just, it's like, it's so plastic, it's so malleable that 
there's admission, there's continuing study, and then there's matriculation. So they're looking at each of these stages and when the transformation happens in you. Because the whole thing's so unstable. And one of these women's college's officials said that gender is uh, much more, let me see if I can get this quote now, much more dynamic than the conversation 20 years ago. And Albert Moeller is like, what does that mean? The conversation. See, they don't want to even there bring in an objective standard. An objective standard is anathema on them. It's all about the human being identifying him or herself, identifying oneself as you choose. It's free will and self-autonomy, just autonomy gone amok. That's what Satan is selling the human beings. Salvation is, no, we are created by a king to serve the king forever. And we're not just fine with that, we're delighted in that. As we've been seeing in Revelation 22, the throne is going to be in the center of the city and his slaves will serve him forever. And they're happy about it. They'll also be his sons and daughters adopted by him and they will inherit with him. And they'll actually reign with him forever. All of those themes are true. But we are not fighting the throne anymore. We're not fighting that we're going to serve him anymore. We're actually glad to do it. That's salvation. And so the more we can embrace that, the better it is. So for us, what we want to do is say, how do we define them? And it's not easy to define manhood and womanhood. Biologically, it's easy. I mean, 99.99% of the case. I know there are genetic anomalies that are very difficult, but I'm setting all that aside. Normally, it's just easy. The biology part is easy, but the roles, how that works and the, how they fit together. You know, so part of the, the, our class is to, is to try to give a, a beginning of an answer to that. And I just, I'm going to come again, again and again to Ephesians 5, and the role given to the husband and the wife as being then generally normative for what it means to be a man and a woman, although there's no authority that any man has over any woman other than his own wife, as the text clearly says. But it has to do with a Christ-like servant leadership on the masculine part and a church-like feminine submissiveness on the female part. That's the general rule. So I'm gonna say that week after week. That's what we're giving in this class of what it means to be a man and not a woman or what it means to be a woman and not a man and then many other things that are actually harder to define. Um, But for us, just to put the question is a win. You see that? I mean, just to talk about it and and say this is a theme and we're going to hold to it, That's we're already standing firm. We're saying these things actually matter. All right, so we've given uh, these definitions from uh, Piper and Grudem's class. Could someone read the biblical manhood one for us there on the first page? All right, and I would just commend the book to you. I think it's worth getting. It's a very long book. It's very exhaustive. It goes through all of the, the gender questions on uh, you know, male elders in a local church, uh, family relationships, husband-wife relationships. It's very encyclopedic and helpful. Uh, but even within those definitions, and I'm not going back over that same ground, they unpack each of those phrases and try to explain what they mean. So this is just by way of review. Now, what I want to do um, with the time we have left today is I want to talk about complementarianism, what that means. Uh, One of our goals in the class is for us to celebrate the genders as God has established, to to celebrate masculinity and femininity, and for everyone to do that, um, that we're just glad that God did it this way because he did it this way. And then especially for you to be very glad and celebrate what you are, within a marriage for the spouses to be 
to be very respectful and celebratory of the other person's role and, and try to foster it. Those are, that's just healthy to the marriage, that, that we are standing vigorously against abusive relationships either way, but especially that a man would not abuse his authority, etc., that we want to esteem and cherish one another like Christ does the church. We, and, and that we would not have any confusion about this, that we would not be confused as we raise our children, that they would not be confused, and that there would be a delight in all of this. And beyond that, and we're going to start to move this morning into the issue of homosexuality and talk about that topic, which has been so huge in our culture over the last 25 years, and see that the Bible does in fact have a lot to say about this that's helpful, that we would, we would see the marvelous grace of God in Christ, the gospel, that helps heal all the wreckage that Satan has fostered on us. The confusion, the irrationality. Isn't it strange, these liberal women's colleges that have been swimming in a sea of feminism are coming soon to the point where they can't define it. They will not be able to define feminism. It won't have a meaning. Isn't that ironic? So you have this bubbling cauldron of satanic false worldviews, and then in comes yet another one, and the whole thing becomes even more bizarre and irrational. When instead the Bible has a healthy view of men and women and relationships and our time here on earth and, and all that, it's given to us, it's never changed, and it's such a beautiful thing, and it's what the world needs. But I just find it ironic that they're going to have a really, really hard time. Like getting a degree in women's studies at Wellesley, I'm not sure they're going to know even what that means in 10 years, if even that long. Will it even be a degree? Because already, and I said this in one of the handouts, you know how the elementary and the middle school teachers weren't allowed to divide groups by genderized terms, remember? But instead they're going with penguins and dolphins or something. You remember that? You like the summer, you like the winter, you like sweet things, salty things, you know, that kind of thing. Well, they're not going to do that. They can't do that at these women colleges either. They can't, they can't specifically genderize any student. Do you not see how that just shuts the whole thing down there at Wellesley? It's just very, very hard to just keep going with women's studies and feminism and all that. It's just very interesting. All right, so let's go ahead. Let's talk about complementarianism. What, you know, there, there's basically the two words that are pitted against each other in this discussion on gender roles is egalitarianism versus complementarianism. So egalitarianism would be just equal roles, equal everything, basically. <clears throat> a woman can be anything she feels God leading her to be, uh, etc. Or just in a more secular way, a woman can be whatever she wants to be. Um, that's egalitarianism. It comes right along from feminism, um, but it's a different term, but similar thing. And then complementarianism is the way that groups that believe <clears throat> in gender-based roles would prefer to speak of how those roles relate to each other. Uh, they complement each other. Um, so that's the idea here. The basic concept is that men and women have roles that complement, sorry the misspelling there, on e complement each other's roles and each are vital to the health of the family and the church. So we need men to be men. We need women to be women. And we should delight in each other, each other's roles. This is a very good thing, and we, and we need that, and we, and we need each other, absolutely need each other. So Gospel Coalition has this uh, statement on, on complementarianism. Men and women are not simply interchangeable, but rather they complement each other in mutually enriching ways. <clears throat> uh, Mary Cassian from uh, when Gospel uh, Coalition 
uh, document she wrote, a complementarian is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line meaning of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church and the Lord's, Lord God's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot, and that females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the Lord God in a way that males cannot. Notice where she's going. You know, she's going to Ephesians 5. I just think, I, I don't think there's any other place in Scripture where I can really give you an answer of what does it mean to be a man and not a woman. It's acted out in a lot of places throughout the Bible. But if you really want to kind of hunker down and get a biblical, theological understanding, it's Christ-like men in the relationship with the church and church-like women in the way that Paul lays out. Though I know that it's, it's in its fullest form in an actual covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman, I understand that. Uh, so the role I have toward all of the women is so very different than the role I have toward Christy. But there's still a, a servant-leading kind of role that men generally have and a, and a submissive, receptive role that women generally have. Frankly, apart from that, I, I basically don't have an answer. If we start getting a bunch of adjectives together, you can find that those adjectives could be for both men and women, depending on the situation. Like compassion, Jesus was more compassionate than any woman that's ever lived. And, more ten and tenderly cared for hurt people better than any woman that's ever lived, though we tend to think of those nurturing, caring roles as female, and I understand that. But Jesus did it better than any, any mother, any nurse, anyone ever did. We know that because he's a perfect human. However, there are roles to play. So she goes to that, Ephesians 5, and I think that's right. To continue Mary Cassian's quote, who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. We do not get to dictate what manhood and womanhood are all about. Our creator does. That's the basis of complementarianism. All right, so she focuses on reflecting and displaying Jesus, like presenting Jesus. I think that's fine, but I think that there's, some, there's more to it than that. There's just some functional roles that go on in life that are hard to define. I think it's easier to find in the family, like especially between a husband and wife and when it's time to make a decision or what direction we're going to go, big picture, what city we're going to live in. Uh, to do what work, what, you know, what direction we're going to follow, what's, what's the mission of our family. That, all of that gets very, very practical for a, a specific nuclear family. I understand that. A little bit harder more generally. But there's just things that are going on in society, in churches, in parachurch organizations, all that, in which the, the, the masculinity and femininity plays a role in ways we will have a hard time defining. And for women to, to embrace what it means to be a feminine, a woman, and men to do the same and have healthy views of gender helps across the board, just to, even in terms of function, functionality, other things like that. But again, as I said, ways that are hard to define. And believe me, I know they're hard to define. It, people always, like, if you go out and you're, you're teaching complementarianism as a leader, like I am as a pastor and videotaping, I don't know what we're doing with that videotape, high videotape audience. <laughs> Some topics I feel more comfortable being videotaped on. I'm always worried about something going viral because I said something and it's, you know, whatever. But um, we'll, we'll tell, tell, tell the truth. But it's hard, it's hard to draw the line. Can a woman do this and not this? I mean, very, very hard on those gray areas. I know that. And, and wherever you draw the line, they're gonna be, you're going to take fire from both sides on that line. And, and sometimes you just would prefer not to draw the line. 
if, you, if you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, like think about, about Christian colleges, what roles women can play in a Christian college as professors or in the administration, Christian companies, parachurch groups, different things. I don't know. I don't know all the answers. I don't know what the Lord would have. I have, I have instincts, but I want to stick uh, close to the Scripture. All right, now, key texts on this, complementarianism. I love to go to 1 Corinthians 11. That's the head-covering passage. Um, and God willing, the next book I'm going to begin preaching on after Revelation is 1 Corinthians. That'll be a, a fun ride. Well, it'll be enjoyable as we go through all kinds of juicy topics. Uh, as I've said before, I don't think there's any controversial topic that comes commonly into the life of local churches that's not covered in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to have an interesting time. But I just am going to preach for the health of the church, and I'll do my best to lead through those very controversial topics including head coverings. But as he talks about head coverings, he makes statements about, about man and woman, goes back to creation, goes back to Adam and Eve, and says certain things. But then he balances it with this remarkable statement. Can someone read this for us? 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. So Paul's meditating on Adam and Eve, their relationship, and how that is normative for gender-based relationships in all time. He does that. He also does it in 1 Timothy 2. And the head coverings is just a, I, in my opinion, just a cultural expression of a timeless relationship between the genders that's set up between Adam, uh, from the time of Adam and Eve. But Paul then continues, he doesn't stop there. He says, but isn't it interesting that just as the first woman came out of the body of a man, from then on, every man came out of the body of a woman, everyone, including Jesus. And that's just very interesting how the Lord set up that. And that really ends up being, he says, not independent. We are absolutely interdependent for us to do the work that we have to do. I mean, we could just start with biology and procreation. There are elect, I believe with all my heart, elect people who have not yet been conceived. Think of the theological significance of that. They have not yet been conceived. There's going to take a man and a woman to get that elect person conceived. You see what I'm saying? And so we are not independent for the entire complement of elect to be there on that final day, that multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation, you've got to have men and women. We'll just, just keep that simple, but there's more than that. So that we're not independent. We need each other. Another uh, text, though not directly uh, used, Paul doesn't directly use it for the gender issue, but I think we could, is in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 14 through 22. Now the body is not made of, of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So there he's just talking generally about the body of Christ. There's lots of different ways to look at that part, that member or part and whole body analogy. You could talk about local churches and how they fit into the universal church. They're, they're, you know, every local church has its strengths and its mission and its ministry. And then there are other churches that do other things better. You can talk about individual Christians and their spiritual gift packages and how they fit together, etc. 
and there's, there's two different sides of the equation he talks about. You shouldn't look at yourself and feel that you're inadequate because you're not that person, because you don't have that set of gifts. Because you, you don't have that set of gifts, you're not part of the body, don't think that way. That's almost a false humility that's harmful because then you won't use your gifts like you should if you have that, that you know, inadequate self-esteem or inadequate self-image. If you say, well, I, I'm not one of the best or one of the greatest, whatever, so I'm not even going to do, do it. That's, that's what Paul's trying to say, don't do that. But then the flip side is the arrogance where you can say, I don't need you. I'm on my own. You can't do that either. So he works both sides of the equation to say every part of the body is needed, it's vital, and it's just how God wanted it to be. Isn't that what he's saying? God set it up like he wants. And your role, if you're a foot, if you're a hand, if you're an eye, do what you were set up to do. And on judgment day, you're going to be evaluated by faithfulness to your calling. And you can't do any better than that. Be faithful to what was entrusted to you to do, and you will be lavishly rewarded. That's what my sermon's about. Is, is rewards. And so just do what God assigned to you, and he's going to measure you based on faithfulness. Now, how does that relate to the gender issue? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so what he's saying is sometimes we look within the context of marriage, and then it leaves a single person like out of the equation. A single man, a single woman, not married, do I have, you know, a role? And, you know, yes, you have a role to play in the body of Christ. Now, we know that in the course of time, that single person may find a spouse and get married. But during that time when they were single, they have a role to play then. So that's absolutely vital. Anyone else on this? How the idea of one part, one body with many members helps with the, with the gender issue. Absolutely. So uh, we're, we'll get into this, God willing, in 1 Corinthians 12. But this is, I think, the helpful insight. If you look at, if one member should say X, and then a few verses later, if another member should say, why? They're different statements. And the first is, I don't belong because I'm not that, or I'm not as great. Don't do that. And the other is, I don't need you because I'm so independent. Don't do that. So there's a self-focus in both cases that's toxic. Basically, you're self-focused. You should know yourself, know your gifts, know your role, and then do it. Because the body needs it. Yeah, go ahead. It is. There's a rebellion aspect. And the remedy, the health, is delight. It's like God is wise. He has arranged the body with the parts just as he wanted them to be. And he is good and wise and loving. So don't fight this. Jay, go ahead. Well, I think as we're looking at the topic of this BFL. I think, at least in my lifetime, it started with feminism. Um, the attack on gender and gender roles started there. I'm just saying in the last 15 years, it's blown through homosexuality in general, through gay marriage, then to the transgender thing. And so that's that we're out at this end, which is the very thing you're saying. I'm not saying these other things are minor at all. I mean, it's true that we fought a battle in this church when I first came uh, two to three years, generally on, frankly, on the word of God. But the topic was gender roles in the church, you know, and I don't consider that minor at all. I never will. I think it's very significant that God wants men to lead in the, in the church and in the home. I believe that. I'm unapologetic about that. And quite the opposite. I think that's what health is all about. 
So yes, uh, the details, um, if, if they're not details, I don't think everything's equally important, Jay. I think it is much more important that men lead than that if you get down, like a, a man would hold the door for a woman as he goes in. I think he should, but you know, that's all I'm saying. So I'm not minimizing it, um, but I'm gonna resist taking a major exit on the highway here and just, just keep going. Let's look at four dangers for complementarians that I saw, I thought this was helpful. There's just so many things going on right now. We've got the, the whole Me Too thing, which is just men abusing their positions and just definitely not behaving like Christ in the marriage or in workplace, whatever. And the church needs to be pretty vigorous. And there's a, it was a current event on this very issue coming up you know, in the Southern Baptist Convention with a leader that made some pretty bad statements, I think, in my opinion, about uh, abuse within marriage. I think these themes we're talking about here are the remedy. The things I began talking about today is the remedy. That if you genuinely esteem your wife as a human being and as a sister in Christ, you're not going to abuse her, not physically, emotionally, sexually, uh, verbally, just won't. I think that's the remedy. Let's look at some of these and then we're going to go on to homosexuality. Four dangers. Uh, first, stereotyping gender roles. In cultures where complementarianism is embraced, it can be all too easy to confuse the essence of masculinity or femininity, femininity that's a hard word to say, femininity, uh, with one particular expression of it. But marriages and church cultures pattern after complementarian convictions will not always look the same. They take on shape and beauty as expressed through particular personalities, cultural locations, and <coughs> relational dynamics. I'm just basically summarizing, if not actually reading things that Gavin Ortland wrote. So um, one thing, Joel, as we go on in Two Journeys ministry, this isn't mine. So let's footnote that, that all of the stuff that follows. It's like, boy, Andy had some good points. No, Gavin Ortland had some good points. All right. Key. All right. Kathy Keller, the basic roles of leader and helper. Do you see how Kathy, Tim Keller's wife, says it's leader, helper. Again, where's she getting that from? Any text that would, yeah, Ephesians 5. You're gonna see that again and again. I think that's just helpful. It's almost like if you get nothing out of this whole course, it's go to Ephesians 5 to understand masculinity and femininity, I think. That's where I would go. The basic roles of leader and helper are binding, but every cult, uh, couple must work out how they will express, be expressed within the marriage. The Kossenbergers say this, uh, scripture doesn't give a lot of detail as to how God's design for man and woman is to be worked out. So a traditional division of labor, women in the kitchen, changing diapers, men at work, letting women do all the household chores, doesn't square with the biblical design. So we believe Titus 2 says a woman should be uh, a keeper at home. That's a biblical text. We need to try to understand that. Someone is going to raise the, the, the children from infancy to older stages. Someone's going to pour into those kids while they are being shaped and formed in their worldview. Who should do that? I think the Bible answers very clearly about that. However, I think to make details as important as clear overarching themes heads a community, a church, toward legalism. Basically, that it's going to be spelled out in the following 26 bulleted ways. I'm just saying, if that's how you're going to approach it, you almost certainly lurch into legalism. Because then the family that doesn't do that is going to be ostracized. They're going to be seen to be not biblical. And yet those things, those 26 things, are not clearly commanded in scripture. That's, I think, what this first point is saying. All right, let's keep going. Uh, yeah, the, he's got all kinds of details here. Uh, people who have grown up in a home in which the wife tends to do the dishes, laundry, and cleaning, husband tends to work a job, mow the lawn, get the oil changed, can only be too natural, 
to simply assume that this is what complementarianism should always look like. Although I will say this, in our marriage, it seems for the rest of our marriage, I'm going to be the one to kill bugs in the house. I mean, that's just, I think that's just been established. And I think she, she would say it's biblical. There's like, this is a masculine, like hunter kind of protector role. I'm like, Christy, you outweigh that bug by 10,000 to one. Step on it. No, that's so gross. Like, especially we have these things, she calls them demon-possessed crickets or camel crickets. They're big and juicy. And she's like, ugh. Anyway, she actually would like to leave the house when I attend to it. Anyway, all that. You guys can work that out in your marriage how you want to do. I don't know. Were you going to say something on this, Craig? You actually were. All right. All right, all right. So keep on killing the bugs. Keep on killing the bugs. Actually, one of my favorite moments in our marriage, there was a big snake. Uh, on the on the roof of our carport and Christy called me I came home from work I'll never forget this um, and uh, I had been reading in uh, I think it was uh, Joab said to David let me go over and take off his head it was like I think Shimei or somebody he said I will not strike him twice I love that line that is so masculine I'm not going to strike him twice so in other words I'll take care of this so I, I was like said to Christy I'm coming home I'm not going to strike that that snake twice. That, that snake's dead. So I got a hard rake and I got a uh, machete and that was that. So, all right, other stereotypes, just you can read them. Uh, we're not going to go by stereotypes. Guys are less sensitive or less emotional than girls. Guys are less talkative than girls. Guys like sports more than girls, etc. It's unfortunate when people stumble over these kinds of details. Honestly, like I think men, some men in the West are, are stulted emotionally and you have to actually study the emotional life of Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem, as he weeps there before raising Lazarus to say, you know, that's a healthy man. There's nothing wrong with showing your emotions. And so I, I think there's all kinds of things. Number two, failing to clearly distinguish complementarianism from various kinds of patriarchalism and hierarchalism. So uh, Ortland writes this, many people in our culture think in only two categories, the meaning of gender in the meaning of gender, <clears throat> conservative versus progressive. But in truth, biblical complementarianism, like the gospel it pictures, will subvert both progressive egalitarian mindsets as well as traditional hierarchical patriarchal mindsets that tend to assign uh, men a more basic role in society than, than women. It will stand out as different, as beautiful, as an alternative, not merely in 21st century Manhattan, but also in ancient India, medieval Europe, 1950s America. In other words, the word of God, and more specifically, Jesus's teaching and example is going to convict everybody. It's not like one society ever had it all right. Like back, you know, the good old days back in the leave it to beaver era or whatever. That's just not true. There were things going on back then that were not helpful. They were wrong. And if the, if the men back then had lived more by Jesus's patterns, then it would have been better. Same thing with women uh, living up to biblical patterns as well. We're not thinking that any culture, any era, any pattern was healthy and right. I mean, we're just sick sinners. And we, this paradise has not come in yet. It's not coming in until Jesus returns. And so we are always ready to be convicted. If you're a healthy Christian, you're like always as a man saying, how can I be more a Christ-like man? And so that would be like traditional patriarchal roles, etc. I believe in patriarchy, just the word means fathers lead. I think that's true in, in families. All right, but how that's been fleshed out it's got all kinds of baggage that's been attended to it that I, I find harmful. And I'm not sure I want to resurrect or, or fix the word. It's not a biblical word. It is a biblical concept. Anyway, number three, 
defending complementarianism zealously but failing to live it out beautifully. So that's one thing. We could get it right during our BFL class, and then you go home and you're rude to, you know, rude to your spouse or whatever. You don't live it out. And so the best thing you can do for your 12-year-old son who asks, what does it mean for me to be a man and not a woman, is not just teach the truth but live it out. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. It's the best thing you can do to teach him. And your daughter, too. She's watching. So she'll know what kind of man that she wants to be with because her father lived her mo- uh, loved her mother, not perfectly, no man does, but just he day after day after day by the Spirit sought to love her like Christ. He saw it. She saw it. That's healthy. So living it out. All right, and then fourth, failing to celebrate the contribution of women. Beth Moore wrote something on this this week, uh, you know, and, and whatever you think about, about uh, what specifically she wrote and all that, I think it's easy for a woman, let's say specifically with gifts of teaching, and she is fitting into a complementarian role, teaching other women, and the Gospel Coalition has a women's conference in which women get up and preach the word expositorily. I mean, the basic concept of Gospel Coalition on the women's ministry is they wanted women to teach in the pattern that the TGC embraces, which is exposition, grammatical, historical, theologically robust exposition. And we did believe that women could teach and preach to other women. We didn't see that that was excluded biblically. And so what's happening is not just with that narrow thing, because again, just like with men, just a small percentage of the body of Christ has the teaching gift, and even smaller percentage the preaching gift. Uh, but that women in general, their gifts and their contributions cannot be esteemed properly. Well, yeah, Rick, go ahead. Yeah, there's a lot I could say about this. I've looked at this for a long time. I think you go back to World War II, especially in the Soviet Union, when basically every able-bodied man has got a rifle and he's fighting the Germans. So who's running the factories? You know, I mean, we, I could say a lot about that. And then, honestly, the women's um, in, in income has been absorbed and expected. So if you have a, a single income with a man's income, it's just going to, for the most part, unless he's expe- exceptionally gifted as a, as, a, as a wage earner, I mean, he's wealthy or whatever, they're going to be a little bit lower. There's always going to be a, a, uh, a gap because she's not working. And there's other things I could say. If, if a woman wants to be a stay-at-home mom, she might be disparaged because she's not achieving anything, et cetera. Let me say one thing. I'm about to preach a, a sermon on rewards and uh, the variability of heavenly experience, which is a hard concept for Christians, and, uh, but I think it's a really exciting one. Um, the basic idea of the sermon is that your eternal uh, experience is, it will in some part be affected by your earthly performance or behavior or works. And that's, that's uh, you know, people have a hard time with that, but I don't think you should. It's like go out there and store up treasure. Go out there and do lots of things for Jesus. Have, be as rich as you can possibly be on Judgment Day. That's the sermon. Well, here's the cool thing. And I've seen this, I, I, I never tire teaching this insight, especially when it comes to wives and women or others that have more humble roles that are never seen. There are men like that too, that just play servant roles in the life of the church and nobody knows what they do. And it has to do with Jesus sending out his apostles two by two. They're clearly the leaders. They're driving out demons. They're performing miracles. But wherever they go, they're supposed to go empty, no purse, no extra thing, no money. And they're supposed to find some base of operations, a house where they can eat and drink and have a little bit of refreshment and go to sleep and then get up and do their ministry again the next day. And he says, find that place and don't look for another. Just settle down there and that'll be your base. Okay. Then he goes back to it again at the end of Matthew 10. 
He says, he who receives you, and in the same context, receives means takes you in, receives me. And he receives me, receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Whoa. Let me, let me make it, you know, anyone who receives a righteous man, because he is a righteous man, will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these apostles that I'm sending out, he'll never lose his reward. Wow. What is he saying? The servant support system person gets the same reward as the upfront apostle person. Whoa. Well, what does that say to the wife of a pastor? She never preached a single sermon. She gets the same reward. My wife gets the same reward that I do because she helps me and enables me and supports me. If that's not encouraging, I don't know what. And on judgment day, I'm telling you, that's all that will matter. Was Jesus pleased or not? I mean, just make, keep your life simple. If Jesus is pleased, who cares what anyone else thinks? And if you're like saying, he's left me in the dark as to what will please him, he has not left you in the dark. He's told you what will please him. And so just do what he's given you to do. Be faithful and he will reward you. It's so cool. And what that means is the whole body gets rewarded based on faithfulness to your foot ministry or hand ministry or eye ministry or mouth, whatever it is, you get rewarded based on your faithfulness to your footness, okay? And that's so cool. Isn't that encouraging? If that doesn't give energy to a person who gets up and who does a service, man or woman, <clears throat> but I'm focusing on, on wives now that, you know, that do servant-type roles and nobody ever sees the things that, most of what they do. Jesus sees it. And he rewards, and, and he says about the cup of cold water, you will never lose your reward. It's eternal. And what is the reward? Praise from Jesus. That's it. He's going to praise you. He's going to honor you. And you're like, man, that's, that's motivational. All right, so you already got the sermon. Please don't not go now. I mean, here are the rest. There's other details. But, you know, when I ask, how much heaven do you want? It's, there's a, a quantifiable dimmer switch kind of thing. It's not how much do you want heaven. That's different. This is how much heaven do you want? How much treasure do you want stored up in there? How many different ways do you want Jesus to express his pleasure with you? And what he's saying is servant roles, he's, he notices and he will reward you. That's so encouraging, isn't it? For everybody, male or female. All right, let's go back quickly to our overall goals and then we're going to dig in and get going on homosexuality, gospel, homosexuality, marriage, those aspects. All right, goals, delight in God's purposes in creating gender, understanding manhood and womanhood biblically, delighting in what God made you to be, delighting in what God made others to be, <clears throat> opposing satanic attacks and arguments on this issue so that we can, we want to sharpen our, our swords, our minds, so that we can refute the lies. I mean, honestly, do you not see how Satan's like laughing at the human race by having like extremely liberal arts colleges and feministic colleges and then later bringing in the whole transgender theme that didn't even exist when I was a kid and then just laughing at us some more. The whole thing's insane. It's irrational. And he's just mocking us. So let's just be able to oppose him. Delighting in God-ordained sexuality, embracing holiness as sexual beings, learning to be completely content in what God ordains, and then celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ is a liberating power, a forgiving power to establish what God wants. That's what we're trying to do. All right, now let's, with the 10, 12 minutes we have left, and we'll spend a number of weeks on this. This is a handout I did about four or five years ago when, um, when the gay marriage topic was 
hot. Actually, 2015 went through, so three years ago. Um, and so this I did right before, like in the spring of 2015, right before the decision was made, uh, the Supreme Court decision, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges. That's a legal case um, uh, in which the Supreme Court ruled five to four. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how five versus four, that decides it for the whole nation. Just, ugh. Anyway, on June 26, 2015, that state bans on same-sex marriage and on recognizing same-sex marriages duly performed in other jurisdictions are unconstitutional under the Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. All right, so in 2015, before that, I did this handout. Time Magazine says, no matter what the Supreme Court decides, hadn't decided yet, the nation's already made its decision, battle's over. On the cover, it said, gay marriage has already won. The Supreme Court hasn't made up its mind, but America has. First of all, I find that to be like a satanic deception. I mean, time can just, it's almost like the prosperity gospel, like name it and claim it, right? You're going to, it's like creative word. They will say what is, and then what do you know? It's become that way. I don't know what America thinks. How can anyone know what America thinks? If you polled 10,000 people with an accuracy of plus or minus 1%, stop, what does that mean? Accuracy of what? You ask me a question, a controversial, difficult, gnarly question, any answer I give, I'm telling you for myself, I don't know that I can give myself plus or minus 1%. I'm like, ask me later today, I might have a different opinion on that, right? I don't, I don't get it. Why not plus or minus 0.1%? <laughs> anyway, all right. It's, it was, that's basically saying it's already done. I will say, however, it's clear our culture is not where it was when I was growing up. It's clear that people actually do believe this. They actually think it's right. Even Christian people articulate these kinds of views out of, a, I think, a misguided compassion. Quote, in recent days, weeks, and months, the verdict on same-sex marriage has been rendered by rapidly shifting public opinion how did Time Magazine play a role in that and other such entities anyway, and by the spectacle of swing vote politicians scrambling to keep up with it with stunning speed, a concept dismissed by even, uh, even by most gay rights leaders just 20 years ago is now embraced by half or more of all Americans with support among young voters running as high as four to one. All right, when I was growing up, uh, like entertainment that, that we watched was uh, things called sitcom situation comedies on TV. Uh, I remember watching All in the Family uh, when I was growing up. There are other sitcoms that came in after that. And it, it, only as a Christian then looking back on that did I realize that I was being indoctrinated. That, that the script writers could control the characters and, and set up straw men and knock them down and there'd be no refutation of the arguments going on. And so little by little the frog's getting boiled and we're made to think. Now on this topic there would be consistently gay characters in, this, in these sitcoms that were presented sympathetically. They were intelligent, articulate, they were loving, they were sacrificial, they were just good people in every other respect. And so, and this was in show after show after show after show. And so little by little, opinion was formed. It's like, oh, you know, and they, they would think uh, this kind of way. Politicians caved in on this issue as well. Bill Clinton signed the Traditional Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. He did, but now calls the bill a mistake. Uh, Republican Senator Rob Portman from Ohio changed his mind on homosexual marriage after finding out his son was homosexual. Others have learned and changed. 
By the way, the learning thing, there's a lot of indoctrination that goes on. There's a lot of training that goes on. Like on college campuses, they're entities, their job is to train people and to, and to indoctrinate people on these things. It's going on in the public school system. By the way, uh, Al Mohler's other, he had three things on the briefing. The first one was on the, the ratio of licensed Democrats to Republicans among professors at universities. 10 to 1. 10 to 1 ratio. 10 to 1. Well, that was the point he made. Is like at Mount Holyoke, it's $65,000 a year times four. That's what, like a quarter of a million dollars for a liberal arts education, which you're learning that. You're learning that stuff. What a mush. Anyway, it's interesting. All right. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Please. Yeah. I didn't know about that, but that's, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, the strategic linking, now listen to this, the strategic linking of gay rights to the struggle for civil rights in the 1950s and 60s was a slam dunk win for the gay rights movement. It's just been a winner. And the same thing's happening with transgenderism as well. It's, it's like a civil rights issue. Um, during a Harrison Ford interview with David Letterman on The Tonight Show in which Ford was talking about his role as Branch Rickey in the movie 42, that was about Jackie Robinson and all of the suffering he went through to, um, you know, as a trailblazer in the, um, breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Letterman brought up the issue of gay marriage during that interview on The Tonight Show as a civil rights issue and the studio audience clapped vigorously. I mean, so yeah, it's a, then there's a civil rights issue. Coretta Scott King, wife of Martin Luther King Jr. said this, homophobia, we'll get back to that word, is like racism and anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry in that it seeks to dehumanize a large group of people, to deny their humanity, their dignity, and personhood. That is just so wrong. That's just not true. Anyway, this sets the stage for further repression and violence that spread all too easily to victimize the next minority group. I would say it is true for some wackos, skinheads and other violent people, they do that. But for me to say that because I believe that homosexuality is, is a sin and that if you don't repent from it, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, basically staying as close to scripture as I can, that I am denying someone else's humanity. I wouldn't be saying that if I didn't think they were humans accountable to God on judgment day. I wouldn't say that to a rock or a tree or a, or a cat. It's because they're human that I'm worried about them. It's because they have an eternal soul that will either be in heaven or hell. It, we're not denying their humanity at all. We're actually worried about them. Homophobia, by the way, I did some research on this. Um, the, I forget, the uh, accrediting agency, the American Psychological, a APA, I think it was something like that, like one of the main psychi psychiatric entities in the United States, all right, had homosexuality as a uh, psychosis until the early 70s, I think. So now, just in my own devious sort of way, I wanted to know if they're now listing homophobia as a psychosis. In other words, you are sick if you're homophobic and that we have certain treatments for you. I don't think they're quite there yet, but mark my words. I'm not a prophet, but I can see that at some point, psych psychologists in America will say homophobia is a, is a sickness and it needs, to be, it needs to be treated. So we're heading that direction. All right, so central message here is Christians must speak out 
and live out the truth to love, in love, to minister effectively to the challenge posed by homosexuality in our age. All right, so there's more on homophobia there. Actually, I, I'm, I'm not going to go into that now. We can start that next time. Let me just say what I think about this. Whether homosexuality or tra uh, transgenderism, various things, never forget what I just said a moment ago. They are human beings created in the image of God, should therefore be treated with respect.